Good morning. Happy Sunday morning. So let me ask you a question before I pray. But do you know your salvation? Last week's Sunday school lesson. Do you know your salvation? Um, because that is the starting point for where we're going today. If you truly know your salvation, the next piece is going to be the piece that, and it doesn't seem like it in the reading, but it directly connects to your everyday life. And today is going to be that, that, that conversation. So um, before I pray, let me say thank you to Gil. Um, it, was, it was great to have somebody that can step up and, and fill in here when Pam and I were celebrating her mom's 80th birthday. So that was, a, that was a greatly appreciated. We got an opportunity to listen to the Sunday school lesson. Um, a little less mention of me next time would be helpful. Thank you. <laughs> um, but we do appreciate your studying and your, your teaching last week. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this week's lesson. Father, we come to another Sunday, and life can be so busy sometimes that that this is kind of a refocused day of our week where we can bring our minds to where you are, help us to refocus for the week to come. Father, thank you for your word that, that you have chosen to speak to us. I pray that the Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to what you're saying and help us to look forward this week to ways to apply what we're, to, we're going to be learning today. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the questions, the question he starts with in the book, and I want to start there and then bounce off and then come back. You get into a spiritual conversation with an unchurched neighbor who has no clear religious beliefs. When you make reference to the Bible, he or she says, wait a minute, you keep quoting the Bible, but how do I know that what it says is true? I mean, the Mormons believe the Book of Mormon, the Muslims have the Quran. What makes the Bible so special? It's just a bunch of stories and myths, right? So what do you say? Now, no, it's not. No, it's not, okay? Say it's the truth. Inspired word of God, okay? Well, let me throw this to you in a couple of situations that I've encountered uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, one is with a family member who says to me, um, well, that's the way you interpret that, but other people can believe that says something different. It was a conversation that Pam and I had with one of my family members. Uh, how about this one? Um, another family member, a different family member, posted on Facebook, and, and we'll not even go there. Um, the whole, if you understand what's going on right now in culture, um, the whole face on the beer can thing. Okay. Um, not even going to get into the talking about the merits of that in itself. But his comment was, people that claim to be Christians that talk about loving, how can they be so hateful? So this is, this is where it comes down to for us. Okay? We, we can talk about, uh, you can talk about um, the acceptance of their sin in, in a lot of different ways, which is what this is about, right? They want, it's not that 
they want you to they want you to accept their sin and they want you to to um, be happy with their sin, right? Um, but let's take this away from the face on the beer can. Let's take this away from um, men and women's sports. And let's take this to the foundational piece of what this is really all about. And that is, and, and this is the question that needs to be asked of those people. How do you define truth? Where do you get truth? Because what it really, really boils down to, especially with this, this uh, family member of mine who posted this about the, the beer can thing. Um, his truth is, if it, he, he claims to be a libertarian... So if you don't know anything about the politics of being a libertarian, politics of libertarian, basically, and you can get nuanced into this, but the politics of libertarian is that they're fiscally conservative. Okay, When it comes to money, they're very conservative in in how they deal with the money aspect of politics. But in the social realm, they're very liberal. Okay? So when it comes to LGBTQ stuff or... um, sex outside of marriage or, or, or any of these other social issues, abortion. Well, it doesn't hurt anybody. So it's loving if we just accept the way they are and love them the way they are. Isn't that the argument? Right? But what's the foundation there? Your feelings are truth. That's the foundation. What's the real foundation? Well, if I accept their sin, then they're going to be accepting of my sin. So if I call them out for that, then they can call me out for this. So if I don't call them out, then they won't call me out. That's probably the reality behind it. But ultimately, it's my feelings are the foundation for all the truth that I have. So then for somebody who doesn't believe that feelings are the foundation of their truth, how do you respond Because feelings change, which means what's right and wrong can change. We've seen that in the last 20 years in the United States, right? So now let's get into 2 Peter chapters 12 to 15. Verse, uh, sorry, verses 12 to 15. Uh, verse 12, therefore, stop. What's it there for? Okay, what did Gil talk about last week? <coughs> Pam and I listened to the Pam and I listened to the, to, to the Sunday school lesson, so I know he talked about this. Verses one to four. What what's that talking about? Okay. Okay. Verse 1. Your great salvation, right? It says, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours. Verses 1 through 4 are talking about your great salvation. So the therefore is talking about Because of your great salvation, right? Verses 5 to 11, talking about our assurance, right? And verses um, 
8 says, if these things of yours are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, which means if you don't have those things, you are useless and unfruitful, right? So people talk about, well, I need assurance of my salvation. First question that should be asked is, um, are you um, being diligent in your moral excellence, in your knowledge, in your self-control, in your perseverance, in your godliness, in your brotherly kindness, in your love? Because if you don't have assurance, something in there is messed up. Right? So the therefore in verse 12 is talking about, okay, because of your great salvation and the great assurance that you should have for your salvation, therefore, let's talk about what's coming next. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Okay, as a teacher, this frustrates me. I've taught this to you already. Why do I have to repeat myself? Um, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. So is he saying they don't know them? They already know them, but he's willing to remind them. And you have been strengthened in truth with what is presented to you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. So because of your salvation and because of your assurance, I want to continually remind you of these things. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me, and that's a reference to um, Peter's conversation with Christ in John 21 where he's restoring Peter after his denial and telling him by which kind of death that he's going to die. And I will also be diligent at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. So his diligence is it so that they will remember him. Is, it, is his diligence so that they remember Peter? It's so that they remember what he said. So this idea of us constantly repeating ourselves as, as people who teach, we're constantly, John says the same thing basically every Sunday, right? At some point, he goes to the gospel and he, he shares the gospel every Sunday. In some way, some fashion, some form, some facet, he's sharing the gospel every Sunday. Why? Because we have to be reminded every week. Peter saying, I will constantly remind you. That's the whole point of where we're getting ready to go in 2 Peter. So your salvation, your assurance, I'm reminding you of your salvation and your assurance because now we get into this next piece. So question one says that Paul seems to be keenly aware that his days on earth were numbered. In light of his impending death, what was his greatest concern? So what was his greatest concern? Truth. What about the truth? We just read it. That we are reminded of the truth. Not reminded of who Peter is. Reminder of the truth that he, is get, that he has written down. Okay, question two. 
Um, we jump to verse 16 here. What is Peter referring to when he talks about fables? Um, how does that tie in with his subsequent teaching about Scripture? And, and one thing that I like to do is define words. What's the word subsequent mean? It's important. What? Say it again. The result of? What? After. After. Okay, so how does what he says about fables, uh, verse 16 says, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths or fables, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when he talks about fables, what does he talk about afterwards regarding scripture that ties in with this? Let me finish this passage because... That's what he's saying, right? What I'm getting ready to tell you ties directly in with what I'm saying. Say what? He was an eyewitness. So when somebody says to you, how do you know that the Bible is true? This is the inerrancy argument that the Baptists have fought semi-successfully over the last 20 or 30 years, 40 years. How do you know that the Bible is true? Scriptures here in this passage give us two definite, two things that tell us that this is why the Bible is true. And it connects to, in, some, in one way, it connects to Hebrew rules for law, right? He doesn't say, Peter says, I am, I am the eyewitness. Um, how many, how many um, world religions have that one person that is the giver of all truth, right? But in Old Testament, for somebody to be considered credible, there were two or three witnesses, right? Well, Mount of Transfiguration, that's what he gets you here. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with, with, with whom I am well pleased. Direct quote from the transfiguration. And we ourselves, who's the we? Peter, James, and John, right? The only three people that were at the transfiguration. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the first facet of why is the Bible true is because there were eyewitnesses. So, and this he makes a very specific and focused target at the transfiguration, the eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. But it, you can go through the New Testament. Paul was an eyewitness. Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, was an eyewitness. John, who wrote John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, was an eyewitness. Peter, who wrote 1st, 2nd Peter, was an eyewitness. So we're not, and, and then after his resurrection, he, he appeared to over 500 brothers. 500 eyewitnesses. So we're not talking about something that was put together. And, and, and this kind of goes back to people want to argue that the Bible is not true, but you go back to the original manuscripts. You go into some of those old Greek, uh, what is it, the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? People, oh, who, who was it? Homer? Was it Homer who wrote those? I care less about that stuff personally. But. Um, how many original documents of those 
particular writings do they have? Less than 20 original documents. Yet they still claim that Homer wrote those. And there's no argument on that, right? Yet there are over 10,000 original writings dated closer to the time that Christ was on earth that agree with what we have today. But you're going to tell me you believe that Homer wrote that when there were only 10 originals, but this isn't written by God, even though there are over 10,000 manuscripts. Do you see the illogical, irrational mindset behind believing that the Bible is not true? Eyewitnesses that have written this stuff down. And the repetitive documentation over the first century, the second century, the third century of, of manuscript after manuscript after manuscript that repeats the exact same thing saved and restored or kept by the Holy Spirit and, and, and through that process. So the eyewitness piece is number one. So question three was about um, Peter citing his own experience. We've just talked about that. Now he jumps in the, the book to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I want you to turn there for a minute. And we're going to come back to 1 Peter in just a second. Or, excuse me, 2 Peter in just a second. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 17. Tell me if some of this sounds familiar to what we've read already. But you continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Sound familiar? Okay. Remembering what you've learned. Verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So really quick, let's talk about the four things that Scripture does. Profitable for teaching. So what's teaching? New ideas. New ideas? Giving you truth? Okay. What about reproof? Correct. Somebody's thinking wrong, and you're helping them to think right. Well, how's that different from correction? Okay. They knew what is right. They did what was wrong. And now you're correcting their behavior. So reproof deals with their knowledge problem. Correction deals with their behavior problem. So scripture is good to teach, teach what truth is. It's good for fixing your thinking. And it's good for fixing your behavior. And training in righteousness goes with that. So come back to 2 Peter with me. Verses 16 to 21. I'm sorry, 19 to 21. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay, to atten pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. Hmm, kind of answers one of the questions that I had earlier, right? 
from a family member. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul speaks of Scripture being given by, interpret, uh, by inspiration. Peter talks of the writer being moved or carried along by the Spirit. What does this mean? Because this is always the question, right? What does that mean? Let's say it's inspired. What does it mean when God wrote through these people? Think of it from this perspective, and, and I read this um, this morning, and I thought, man, what a great analogy for this. God uses, in, in, in the inerrancy of Scripture, God uses the, 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 the vocabulary, the personality of the person who's writing, right? So he, he's not, he's not in, in a way, he's not injecting specific words. He's using, because if he was, then all of the writings should be similar. Right, but they're different. You look at the synoptic gospel. You look at the gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They cover the same three years of of Jesus's life, but there's variations in each of the stories. Does that mean it's not true? No, it's writing from that person's perspective on that situation. That's why there's variation. Does it change what it means? No. So think of it from this perspective: the word "moved." in the Greek, is the word used for when the wind fills the sails of the ship. So the rider is the sailboat, and the spirit is the wind who fills that sailboat and pushes it forward. So when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about God using these men, filling these men, and guiding them to where he wants them to be. Using their own rudder, their own oars, their own hull, their own sails. But he's guiding them where he needs them to be. So that takes us to the second part of this. How do we know that what the Bible says is true? And this goes right to Pam and my discussion with a family member. Well, you think it teaches this, but I think it teaches this, and so-and-so thinks it teaches this. It could be any one of those things. It's just whatever I think it is. So you get to... Um, oh, let's talk about... That. I'm going to jump back to that in a second. Verse 19. And we have as more sure the prophetic word. Because what, what, is, what is the cultures, and it kind of goes right into what um, we talked about with the beer can, right? My feelings guide, my experience guides what's true. So is Peter saying that his experience and Peter and James's and John's experience and the other disciples' experience and the 500 eyewitnesses experience is that the primary way of saying that this is what god says is true no he says yes we were eyewitnesses 
But the more sure prophetic word you have, that's what he's saying. We have a more sure prophetic word. You will do well to pay attention to it. So he's saying, yes, we are eyewitnesses, but what this is, this written word in front of you, is more sure than even the eyewitness. Because at some point the eyewitness is gone, but the word remains. So your feelings don't matter in the case of this. And, and this is where we jump back to, we have to be real careful. Have to be real careful because 1 Peter 3, we've already covered this, but this is a very good point to come back to this. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Isn't that what they're doing? You must hate people because of what you believe. They're asking you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and fear. So for your emotions to get ramped up when somebody infuriates you because of what they're saying about the beer can, gentleness and fear is, is the foundation for this conversation. As a lamp shining in a dark place. Aren't we in a dark place? The word is the lamp. Psalm 119.105, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Which leads us to the day star, right? Until the day dawn, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The word leads you to the morning star, who is Christ. And the word will no longer be necessary when we come face to face with the day star. But right now, it's what we have of his light. And we have to trust it. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes, comes by one's own interpretation, not your own ideas. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the two things that you need to carry with you this week in you seeing those conversations in addition to gentleness and meekness. What is, what, why do you believe that this is the truth? Well, first of all, the eyewitnesses. Second of all, that it wasn't man who wrote these things down. It, it wasn't man who inspired this. It was inspired by the Spirit of God. He moved the authors into writing this stuff down. God inspired this word. This truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not going to change with the winds of culture, unlike your feelings will. It 
It does. And somebody will say to you, well, sure it does. The next question should be, where? Because they've all heard that it contradicts, but none of them know where it contradicts because it doesn't. There's only one person who has risen from the dead and stayed risen from the dead. And if they need rational um, rational explanations for that, which some people will say they do, well, you can go to Josephus, who is a, historic, uh, is a Jewish historian, not a Christian, who has written down that the tomb was empty. Why would they have to make up a story about him body being stolen if it wasn't there? Because they could just bring the body out and say, see, here it is. Um, was it Pliny? No. Roman historian, as well as Josephus. There's two specific ones that they can go back and find that talks about this very time period. So the resurrection is the hinge point. And there is, there is from, a, from a rational perspective... There's a Roman historian, there's a Jewish historian, neither one of them who had a dog in the fight, who wrote it down as, this is what happened. So the fulfillment of the prophecy that Christ would, was born of a virgin, that he would live a sinless life, that he would die on a tree, be buried in a rich man's tomb, and rise again, were fulfilled, and there's Jewish and Roman historians that can, that can collaborate a lot of the lifetime of Jesus. So there's no question that he was a man. There's no question that he rose from the grave. So all of these pieces come together, but the foundation is that Scripture is what tells us that. And, and Peter, as well as John, and as well as Jude go back to talking about the prophecies of old. So that ties it to the Old Testament, right? Connects it to the Old Testament. We can believe what the Old Testament says because the New Testament is telling us that the Old Testament was true. And in, and in that, you can believe that the New Testament is true as well. I wanted to touch on one other thing. And we're going to get here, we're going to cover chapters 2 and 3 next week. But there's a piece of chapter 3 that I'm going to talk about. Because it goes right, connects directly to our world today. So, a lot of the thinking, and if you've known me for any time, you know how emphatic I can be about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, right? And the creation, the flood, 
those things and how, I, how important I, that those things are. But one of the things that our world has accepted is evolution, right? Uniformitarianism, for, to use a big word, which means things are happening today in the same way that they happened yesterday and a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago and a million years ago and five million years ago. Things are happening in very slow processes and things never change, right? Did you know that Second Peter talks about that? Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. So he's referencing 1 Peter, right? In which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of remember. What's he telling us to do again? Remember. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So here, Peter says, the prophets of old, you need to believe it. The apostles, the gospel given by the apostles, you need to believe it. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mock, mock, mocking, following after their own lusts. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Before uniformitarianism became a popular thing in the 1800s, 2 Peter told us it was coming. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. And it's a reference directly to the flood. So, Second Peter, written so long ago, speaks directly to this is the way our society thinks. It knows. Why? Because the Holy Spirit knew this was coming. He knew we needed this because Second Peter is about... First Peter was about what? Pop quiz. Sufferings. And what's the goal of suffering? To prove your faith. Yes. Now, Second Peter is about there's going to be people coming along they are going to tell you what you believe isn't true. Isn't that what we're seeing in our society today? Well, what, what you, that's not true. God made them like this, right? Know what you hear? And Second Peter says, don't believe worldly fables. Believe in, number one, the great salvation that you've been given, verses one to four. Number two, the assurance that if you're living out the faith that God has given you, and you're doing things the way he's asked you to do them, that will provide great assurance to your salvation. Number three, believe what the eyewitnesses have told you. And number four, that it's all written down so that you can remember. And remember, and remember again, and remember again. Because in those dark moments, right, it's easy to forget. Let the day star shine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Second Peter.
Thank you for the reminder again of our great salvation. Thank you for the reminder again of the assurance that we can have through our faith and through our faithfulness. Father, thank you for your eyewitnesses. And thank you for the more sure prophetic word that you have given us, written down so that we can have confidence in what you have written. And that what is written can be trusted. Be with with us as we move into the next service. In Jesus' name, amen.